There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kerminsky and Colin Andrews. Greg, last week we talked about bull and bear market cycles and the impact on portfolio returns. I know you remember that because it was you and I talking about it. I remember it clearly. Now, today we're going to carry on with our journey and what we're going to talk about today are dividends. And one of the common themes in Canada specifically Actually, I should say when I say Canada, my wife always says I sound American, but the way I say Canada, I'm not really sure why. Maybe there is some American in you. I'm not American, but one of the common themes in Canada is to focus on dividend-paying stocks as part of or even all of a portfolio's construction. True. And we thought today maybe it would be worthwhile to spend an episode talking about dividends, the value of dividends, and how they fit into portfolios. So, Let's start with what are dividends. So dividends basically are a distribution of some of a company's earnings to a particular group of shareholders. So what happens is the company's board of directors will determine the amount of dividends and the timing of those payments. In Canada, most of the common shares would pay dividends on a quarterly basis. But not all common shares pay dividends. Not all common shares pay dividend. Not all dividend payers pay quarterly. But you find that that's the norm. And then there are still some common shares or ETFs that pay dividends monthly. But again, what it really is, though, is is a distribution of companies' earnings to shareholders, and those can be paid in cash, or they can also be paid in the form of additional stock. So why receive dividends? What's the benefits of receiving dividends? Well, some investors like to or need to receive cash flow on a regular basis, and therefore in Canada and in the U.S. as well, dividends are paid and provide that cash flow And they're also taxed in a preferential way, meaning the after-tax value of a dividend of a dollar, for example, is better than the after-tax value of a dollar of interest or regular income that's earned. And so, again, the benefits, one, regular income, and two, tax-effective treatment of that income. That interest income you're talking about would be specific to bonds, GICs, things like that. That's right. Maybe let's take a second to talk about why are dividends taxed preferentially to shareholders? And the answer to that lies in the fact that these dividends are paid from a company's after-tax profits. And so the company earns revenue, pays expenses, and then they pay tax on their net earnings. And the after-tax amount is then distributed, or part of the after-tax amount is distributed to shareholders. And so because the company's already paid tax on the earnings, then there's a tax credit offered to the shareholders who receive those dividends. And that's the whole concept of tax integration, so that the total tax paid on the earnings of the company would equate to about the regular amount of tax that an individual would pay on regular income. But then the individual still is taxed on the dividend. So the individual is taxed on the dividend, but a tax credit is applied, and that results in net tax to the individual shareholder being less on dividends than it would be on interest income. So the question is, well, how do dividends fit into building a well-diversified portfolio? 
Many people believe that the key to long-term investment success is to hold a basket of dividend-paying stocks. Now, this may or may not result in a portfolio that provides better returns than the overall market, but there's a number of myths about dividend stocks that it's worth addressing before we determine whether it's the right strategy. But Greg, this isn't new. I know when we were at our previous firm, they used to put out a report called the power of dividends. So this notion of owning dividend-paying stocks goes back a long ways. That's right. And there's a lot of research papers that attempt to prove that all you really need to do is to hold dividend-paying stocks to achieve excellent returns, or in some cases, returns that actually beat the market. But there is certainly debate about that. So what are the myths we want to talk about? First is that a lot of people see dividends as being essentially free income. So they think, well, we get paid a dividend, and that has no effect on the stock price or the portfolio value, and that it's just basically free cash. Free lunch. Free lunch. That's right. And of course, we know there is no such thing as a free lunch. The reality is if a company pays you a dividend of a dollar, then the value of the company has to fall by a dollar per share immediately after the dividend is paid. So take this a little bit further. If the company shares are worth $20 before a dividend is paid, then after the payment of $1 in dividends, you would now hold $1 in cash and the shares have to be worth $19. That's just simple mathematics. So you may not notice that immediately on the share price of the stock because, of course, there's random share price movements of all stocks day after day and even during a day. And so you may not notice that the value of the stock has dropped by that dollar, but it must have. The value has to have become a dollar less after they've paid you a dollar of cash. There's also an issue of a basic human behavioral or cognitive bias, which is called mental accounting. And that is just that if you receive a dollar of a dividend, it feels like you've received that money without having had to sell anything. And it feels better to some people to receive a dollar of income than to sell a dollar's worth of shares. And in effect, the net effect is exactly the same thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, as you say, it's just math. So if you have a company then, in your example, it is $20, it doesn't pay a dividend, but you need that dollar for income and you sell that dollar, isn't it the same thing? Absolutely. You have a dollar of cash and $19 worth of shares left over. So in the end, it's exactly the same thing, but it doesn't feel the same to investors. Another myth about dividends is that dividend companies themselves are better investments because of their history of paying dividends or increasing their dividends over time. And it's true that actually a lot of dividend-paying companies do have long track records of paying and increasing their dividends over time. And many of these are the blue chip companies that we're all aware of. So examples in Canada would be the big five Canadian banks, lots of utility companies, etc. And those are considered blue chip, consistently strong earning companies over time. So don't they call it the banks, pipelines, and utility stocks? Exactly. Those are the typical dividend payers. And they also in Canada would represent a lot of the companies that have been around for hundreds of years, possibly. And in fact, in the good old days, when the Toronto Stock Index was the TSE 35, probably most of those 35 stocks would have been included in this list of blue chip companies. So it's true that there are a lot of companies that have a long history of paying dividends and some that have a history of increasing their dividends over time. But the problem is that Over time, companies' earnings can change very dramatically. And if you look at what happened to bank earnings, let's say during the global financial crisis or even during the period we're in right now with this global pandemic, if banks are maintaining their 
dividend payouts, and yet their earnings are dropping, then the payout ratio, which is just the what percentage of the bank's retained earnings are being paid out to shareholders in the form of dividends, then the payout ratio has to be increasing. And we don't know, I'm not speaking of any company in particular, but we do know of companies in the past where payout ratios exceed 100%, which means they're paying more in dividends to shareholders than the company's actually earning. But that's always a surprise to investors when you invest in a company that has a payout ratio of more than 100%, and then the stock price goes down one day and they wonder why. Exactly. And essentially, all the company is doing is giving you your own money back in the form of a dividend. And in some cases, they're giving you more than they can afford to. And so when you look at companies that pay dividends as opposed to companies that don't pay dividends, you could easily have two companies with the same basic business model and earning the same revenue per share, that kind of thing. And one company could pay out half of its earnings and dividends. The other company could keep that money and invest it for future growth. And so in many cases, you might be better off with a company to retain its earnings and to use it to finance growth if it's in an area that has great potential for the future. You know, I was just looking back at what happened to some of our high dividend payers, let's say in Canada, over the last number of years and going back to just before the global financial crisis. And it's interesting, when you look at, say, some Canadian bank stocks right now, some of them are trading at levels that we first achieved back in 2007, prior to the global financial crisis. In fact, I was looking at one major U.S. bank stock. To be unnamed. Unnamed bank stock. I don't want anything to be perceived as being given a recommendation to buy or sell any of these stocks. Strictly for example, there's a U.S. bank stock, one of the largest U.S. banks, is currently trading at a level that it first reached 20 years ago in the year 2000. And so just because these companies have histories of paying dividends, it doesn't mean that they are necessarily the best investments either. The other thing, too, is that by focusing on companies that only pay dividends, what you're actually doing is you're excluding a whole group of companies, namely the smaller companies, or what we sometimes call small cap companies, that typically don't pay dividends. These would be small companies that are maybe emerging technologies or emerging companies that are reinvesting any of their revenue and earnings into growing. And we know historically that the performance of those companies is higher over the long term than the performance of large companies. And so by focusing on dividend payers, you may be excluding a very large part of the market. That's that small cap tilt you're mentioning. Exactly. Another myth is that you can build a well-diversified portfolio by selecting dividend-paying stocks specifically. The problem with that is that as Canadians, we're looking for that tax advantage that I mentioned earlier. And so what's going to happen is if you want to capture that tax advantage of the dividends, then you're going to be limiting your portfolio to Canadian stocks. So what that does is, first of all, it adds a level of over-concentration which we've talked about previously, that adds risk and reduces opportunities. And when you focus on dividend stocks, you typically get a few main sectors that have historically paid dividends. What you mentioned earlier, banks, utilities, pipelines, real estate companies. Well, the problem is that a lot of these companies may behave in a similar way under certain market conditions. So for example, when interest rates go up, then these what are considered interest-sensitive stocks can be negatively infected. And those certainly include utilities, pipeline, and real estate companies. So you're adding extra concentration there by having a lot of your money in interest-sensitive types of stocks. Yeah, but Greg, even within the TSX, I think we've mentioned this in the past, 
if you look at the main sectors that make up the Toronto Stock Exchange and how, I don't know, undiversified the TSX is. It is very undiversified relative to, say, the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, which is the 3000 main stocks that trade in the U.S. But even by sector, because in Canada, I say it again, Canada, you know, if you look at the exposure to bank stocks and mining and materials and energy stocks, I think that that makes up somewhere around 80% of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Our market here in Canada is much, much more concentrated in a few key areas that you just mentioned. And we have very little exposure to sectors like technology and healthcare, which of course, when you look at what's going on in the world right now, those are the sectors that are booming currently. So again, you add concentration risk by not only being in certain sectors, but by being in Canada, where we've talked in the past, where we represent only about 3% of the world stock market capitalization. And to have 100% of your stock exposure in 3% of the market is, if it's not a direct risk, it certainly is an opportunity cost by missing out on all of the growth that you can see in the other 90% of the world. But this problem you mentioned, this third problem, this isn't limited to retail investors. I mean, we've been at conferences where there's people that have worked in our industry for many years, and they talk about how they have this stock screening process to identify the best Canadian stocks to own. The question is, well, what do you do for U.S. and international exposure? And they say, well, we just use a couple of ETFs. Absolutely. It applies to individual investors. It applies to fund managers, institutional managers as well. There's certainly a belief that the key to long-term investment success is to buy dividend-paying stocks. And we just happen to believe, and that would be our opinion, that there's a whole world of investing opportunities out there. And by focusing in that tightly, you're exposing not only to higher risk, but also to a large opportunity cost of missing out. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of myths about dividend stocks is that they're like bonds. And so some people look at the income stream that dividends offer and they think, well, that's just like a bond. I get paid my three or four or 5% per year, and that just comes in regardless. And that's particularly attractive to them given what's going on currently with interest rates. I mean, interest rates have been low for the last many years. They were just on their way up. And then, of course, with the pandemic, interest rates have gone back down to historic lows, I believe. I was looking this morning. I think the 10-year Government of Canada bond yield today is 0.51%. And so it's easy for people to say, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to earn anything on my bonds, but I can earn this great dividend on stocks. Well, that actually makes sense for people to look at it that way. Because as you mentioned, 0.51% in interest payments for 10 years versus, I don't know, a 5% dividend annually. I actually buy into that if you can accept the extra risk that comes with owning dividend stocks. Because as we mentioned earlier, dividend stocks are still stocks. And the dividends are not guaranteed. They're paid at the discretion of the board of directors. Stock prices can go down dramatically, as we saw during the credit crisis and during the bear market that started this year, is that dividend-paying stocks can go down just as much. So for people that are looking at bonds in their portfolio for more than just income, but looking at them as, call it ballast for the portfolio, then you have to acknowledge the extra risk that you're taking on by having your income provided only by dividend-paying stocks and not by bonds. Now, I was looking at this just going back to 2008. So when you look at 2008 itself, we know during the 
global financial crisis from top to bottom, the markets went down about 50%. During 2008, a portfolio of dividend-paying stocks would have declined by at least 33% in 2008. In Canada. In Canada during that calendar year. But if you looked at a balanced portfolio that had half bonds and half in stocks, globally diversified, not just in Canada, the portfolio would have still declined, but it would have declined just 13.5%. So by having a balanced portfolio globally diversified, it protected almost 20% of your capital during that period. So that's a pretty significant number. And so you have to look at bonds. As we've talked previously, bonds are more than just there for income. They're there to help cushion against the volatility that we can see in the stock markets. So if people wanted to build a portfolio of dividend-paying stocks strictly for income, they could absolutely do that. The problem is that most investors could not live with the volatility of that portfolio. And seeing all of your holdings go down by 30% or 35% is not a very comfortable position to be in, meaning there might be a better chance of actually selling out at the wrong time. We referenced the global financial crisis or global credit crisis a lot in our episodes because it was a significant period of time. As you point out, the stock markets, US, Canada, everywhere went down significantly over the course of one to two years. That's right. And so some of our beliefs that we've adopted over time came out of the learnings of that crisis. Exactly. And every crisis is different, but every crisis still has kind of some of the same characteristics. Earnings expectations go down, recessionary fears go up, and stock prices go down. Well, on that note, I want to talk about this thing called dividend discount model and how the current events have changed our views on dividends and the dividend discount model. So I'm not sure if everybody listening to this would even be aware of this term dividend discount model, but this comes out of academia. So if you go to any finance class in college or university, they're going to talk about the dividend discount model. For me, it's kind of all up for debate right now because what it talks about in this model is that stock prices are based on future cash flow expectations of a company. But what happens to the stock price if the economy comes to a screeching halt like it did in March and there are no corporate earnings? How is that reflected in the stock price? And so the dividend discount model, as it is in finance textbooks, has three variations. The first being the Gordon growth model. This model assumes the dividends grow at a constant rate over time. And I think what we've heard about these in Canada has been termed dividend aristocrats. That's right. That's just a term I think that they use for companies that have shown a continual pattern of increasing dividends over time. The second form of dividend discount model is called the one-period dividend discount model, which is the least common form, by the way. I won't actually spend any time on it at all. But the third one is the multi-period dividend discount model, which basically forecasts different growth rates of dividend rates over time. So I think it's fair to say if, and again, just our opinion, Greg, because we don't want to get into trouble, but if we have a hard time selecting a security at any time because we don't know what's going to happen around the corner, how are we supposed to forecast that a company's going to change its dividend rate over different periods of times by different amounts? Very difficult and probably something that the companies themselves can't forecast, let alone somebody on the outside. And because I know, for example, Wells Fargo, I'll use their name because this is just fact, they cut their dividend a few weeks ago. 
That's right. So I'm pretty sure that in some research paper somewhere where they're using the dividend discount model, be it Gordon Growth or multi-period, nobody forecasted in February that Wells Fargo was going to cut their dividend this year. So I think it's fair to say that the economic cycle and market cycle that we're living in just don't add anything to the idea of a dividend discount model that some of it is sort of out the window right now. And there's a lot of pressure, I think, on companies to try to maintain or grow their dividends, even in times when you wouldn't expect it. I know on many occasions, we've read earnings reports by companies that say, well, their earnings fell short of expectations and they missed their earnings expectations by 10 or 15 cents a share. And at the same time, they raise their dividend. Mystical. And I think they're doing that to maintain this dividend growth even at the expense of ultimately the shareholders because they're paying out more than they can afford to. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the whole model's up for debate, as I mentioned, and that there's this real idea that market cycles supersede the notion of dividend discount models. This is just my opinion, our opinion. Don't want to get into trouble on that, but I had this same argument with a prof in a corporate finance class when I was completing my MBA, and the prof was really focused on the fact that the dividend discount model is just basically the word of God. Like, this is exactly how it works. And I had a debate with him about, that's a model. When there's also this thing called reality, where you have things like global financial crisis or global pandemics now that just get in the way of things like modeling. You would know more about this than I do, but the dividend discount model would imply that you can kind of select a share price target based on dividends and some of the things you've identified. and. We already know that it's very difficult to predict share prices because now you need to predict the value based on a certain assumed growth rate of dividends. And then at the same time, you have to make some assumptions about the discount rate and what is the appropriate multiples and things like that. So it just adds to the complexity of this whole concept of trying to predict share prices and whether today's prices are actually efficient or meaningful. Where we've come to this is through our own evolution of, I don't know, advice and experience over time. And historically, look, we used to buy dividend paying stock securities in dividend portfolios. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's important that our listeners understand, I mean, there's nothing wrong with holding some dividend stocks. And many people do just through share ownership plans of the companies they work for. Good point. Now, I want to bring up a story about that, though. (laughs) Okay. A couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago, we had somebody that was referred to us and they came in And at the time, they were working at a local large cap oil and gas company in Calgary. And when we reviewed their portfolio, they were 100% invested in their company stock. Seems excessive, but okay. Yeah. So they were getting paid by the company as their paycheck. They were saving in their savings plan with their company in stock and getting bonuses in stock. It was all combined. Now, at the time that we met with this person who's unnamed, The company stock was around $43 a share, and the company, which will remain unnamed, had a dividend rate of around 6%. And we suggested that you really need to divest some of your exposure to your company. Really, you just got too much concentration risk here. And like, what happens if something happens to the company? Our advice is to sell a majority of your shares and invest in a globally diversified stock and bond portfolio with low fees. Seems reasonable, right? Makes sense. I said no. The dividend is making my mortgage payments. There's no way I'm selling this stock. Well, if we fast forward to today, that same stock tragically is priced around $2 a share. And 
it does still pay a dividend. I didn't think it did. It's 0.49%. So this is just tragic, Greg. I mean, the amount of loss this person incurred was in excess of $250,000 by just not diversifying and focusing solely on this dividend strategy. So I would call that a concentrated dividend strategy on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. But it points out, okay, some of the risks, as you mentioned, concentration risk. So being invested in one company, regardless of what it is, just has more than market risk. So even in our own, how we're paid, we receive shares of the company we work at and we may divest them and Uh, diversify them. For sure. Not because I don't believe that the company will be successful. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how do you build a well-diversified portfolio that reduces risk as much as you can? Exactly. Some of the other risks are human capital and investment capital being intertwined. So if you're working at an energy company and you're getting your paycheck from that energy company, your human capital is already there. For sure. So investing more into the company just adds another layer of risk. And what about unforeseen risk? that never know what's around the corner risk. So something like a global pandemic. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, what if you worked for a cruise line, an unnamed cruise line in January and you're given your company bonus in shares and you're paid by them. And well, we all know what happened to cruise lines. That would be painful. Yeah. So there's so many examples of this over time. I just sounded American again, examples in Canada. <laughs> But they're just examples that we're surrounded by them. I mean, we've lived, we've talked to many people over the years that have had tragic events in their portfolios because of these risks. Absolutely. And again, it's why you need to look at your entire financial picture and not just one aspect of it at a time. Because certainly the human capital and investment element of the story you gave is just a tragic tale of being overly concentrated and thinking that the good times will last forever. Exactly. Well, and let's talk about cost of capital. I mean, companies that pay a really high dividend who have a payout ratio more than 100%, I guess you got to ask, why does that company have such a high dividend? Are they trying to attract investors? Of course they are. I mean, because a company that has less risk in it would pay a lower dividend. That's right. And what we've seen over time is that whenever dividends appear to be way out of line with similar companies, they're usually are at risk of being cut. Because a company would say, well, why do I need to pay 12% to shareholders when a similar company to mine is paying 5%? So there's certainly risk attached to the ultra-high dividend payers. This is just another example of what we talked about in a previous episode about, I think we talked about Venezuelan bonds versus government of Canada bonds. It's the same story. It's just maybe it plays out in the equity market too. So Greg, look, that was a lot of fun actually, but what did we learn today? As I said earlier, there's nothing wrong with companies that pay dividends. And so if, when, if a client comes to us and say, well, look, we've got these five companies and I love them. I've owned them forever. They pay a great dividend of 5 or 6% or something like that. It's not a question of whether or not it's good or bad to own those companies. It always comes down to, well, how does that fit into the structure of your portfolio? And have you got the proper diversification Are you focusing on the right things? Are you focusing not only on how much income you'd like to earn, but what your exposure to stocks versus bonds or other assets like real estate or cash or things like that? And so 
Yeah, it's not a question of, oh, you should never own a dividend stock. In fact, if you own a well-diversified portfolio of 10,000 stocks around the world, I guarantee that you own a whole lot of dividend-paying stocks. And I also guarantee that you will own, I shouldn't say guarantee, but I'm 99% sure that you will own all of the companies that you would buy individually, thinking that they're extremely good dividend payers. You just may not own a lot of them relative to the whole portfolio. So well-diversified portfolios of stocks automatically include companies that pay dividends. Those dividends are earned and you receive them. But to focus specifically on dividend-paying stocks and thinking that that's the secret to better investment success may not come to pass. Let me wrap it up with this. I like to think of dividends as calcium. And I might get into trouble for saying this little one, but I'm going to go with it. Dairy producers would have you believe that you need to drink two glasses of milk a day to get the proper amount of calcium in your diet. But I believe it's been proven that if you just eat a well-balanced diet, you get calcium from all kinds of other foods and you don't necessarily have to have two glasses of milk per day. So the question would be, well, why are they telling me to drink two glasses of milk today? Well, I guess that means because then they sell more milk. What if you don't like milk? Then what, what if you don't like, what, <laughs> yeah, what if you had an allergy or something? But to me, dividends are like calcium in that, yeah, you can focus on them specifically, or you could just have a well-balanced diet, or in this case, a well-diversified portfolio, and you'll collect dividends just as a byproduct of being invested. Exactly what I was trying to say. You just said it better. Only with great tutelage over the years from yourself. But I think we better wrap it up there today, Greg. Any last parting thoughts? No, I think it's just time to go out and enjoy what's left of summer, given that we've had a relatively short one so far. And time is flying by, it seems. Exactly. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch. And we'll talk with you next time. Bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Free Lunch Podcast, hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminsky are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.